Well, we are going to get into the sermon. It's going to be a little bit shorter, but uh, it's so special to see the family of God take shape and to see literally uh, future disciples represented up here, future disciples of Jesus that are going to know Jesus and go on to live for Jesus. And we just, we love that we get to do that together as a church family. And thank you for being a part of that. Uh, We are in week three of Christmas Foretold, this Advent series, looking forward. That's what Advent means. Uh, Advent means looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And, And the way we're doing that this year is the series Christmas Foretold. We're seeing the bigger picture of Christmas. We're not just looking first at the the manger scene in Bethlehem, but we're panning back to see how the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, didn't just spring up out of nowhere in the New Testament. It was foretold in the old. And so uh, several months ago, my kids and I, I have three kids, and I took them with me on Google Earth on my phone. Anybody ever done that? Right? You get to pan back in Google Earth, it's a really cool feature, and you see the whole globe from space. And I'm showing our kids that, they see the whole globe from space, and then I entered our address, typed in our address, and Google Earth is really cool like this, you can zoom in, you kind of fly in from space to see your actual address, and you can see everything around your house, it's really vivid. And so my kids start to see like our backyard. Our pool, the cover over our pool, the trees in front of our house, like there's two, and there's two actually at our house. And it starts to be this cool moment, but then it starts to be this creeped out moment. Because my three kids are like, Dad, who took this picture? How do they know all this stuff about our house and our lives? Like, are they watching us? And I'm like, well, kind of, yes. But once they got past being creeped out, they started to gain perspective, and with that perspective, they they gained power. They started to see, okay, we were in space looking at the globe, and then we flew in all the way to our address, and there's all this detail, like we're part of something bigger, something greater, and we've never done that before. And listen, if I had just taken them first to our house and just said, hey, guys, look at the cars, they still would have been creeped out. But they wouldn't have seen the bigger picture. They they would have never panned back to see hey, this little house is part of this bigger earth that's part of this bigger universe. So there's something special about zooming out, seeing the big picture, and then zooming in. That's what this series has been about. And if you're new, the first week, we we zoomed out on this concept of of Bethlehem and that Jesus would come to this lowly town of Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem, but that's the scene of where the Savior of the world would come. We looked at that. The second week, we looked at this son who would come, this child who is also a king. And we saw in Isaiah, 600 to 700 years before Jesus ever shows up in a manger, we saw in Isaiah, hey, there is a child who's also going to be a king. And we zoomed out and then zoomed in on that. And today, we're doing the same thing with Jesus as Savior. We're going to look at this concept from the Old Testament that we see come to fruition in the New Testament, that Jesus is is Savior, and we're going to get perspective and power as we do that. Uh, So I would invite you to grab a Bible. You're going to need that. Uh, Grab a Bible, open it up to your Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, Bible app, whatever you may have. If you don't have a Bible, we always have Bibles in the shelves in the lobby. Uh, You can also look on the screen if you would like. But Jeremiah 23 And we are uh, parachuting in here, so I want to give you some context. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, maybe in an annual Bible reading plan, uh, you may know it's kind of a Debbie Downer book. It's kind of a little bit doom and gloom. We have uh, one verse in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, 
that's really hope-filled. But that hope-filled verse is really in a hopeless book. Jeremiah 29, 11, some of you may have seen it on a coffee mug or knitted into a blanket. It says this, that, that God says, I have a plan for you to give you a future and a hope, declares the Lord. And, and we do. We love that verse. We, we put it on a coffee mug. We knit it into a blanket. But Jeremiah is 52 chapters. And I've never seen any other verse on a coffee mug. <laughs> right? Just that one. And that kind of indicates to you the book of Jeremiah. Right? There's a lot of doom and gloom. You have the people of Judah who, God bless his soul. Jeremiah is just a faithful prophet. He's begging the people of Judah, hey, obey God. Hey, God wants what's best for you. Like parents are going to do one day with these little kids. Hey, we want what's best for you. Hey, we love you. We're not trying to withhold things from you. We're trying to give you good things. We want you to obey. And the prophet Jeremiah is doing that with grown-ups, with adults, with the people of Judah who have turned away from God. And he just over and over, year after year, Jeremiah does this, calls them to repent, calls them to obey. So you have that. But you also have wicked king after wicked king. False savior after false savior. All of these kings who were supposed to be promises of hope and security of salvation, which we're going to see Jesus brings. And you have all these kings after kings coming, and they always fall. They always fail. And so you see God bring judgment on kings and on people for their sin and for their rebellion. That's the book of Jeremiah. But in the midst of that, you do have some hope. And it's not just Jeremiah 29, 11. It's in Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. I think maybe if we, if we really thought about this, we would put these two verses on a coffee mug. I'm just saying. You tell me after the service if you agree, all right? Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6, we, we do get some hope. We get some hope of a coming king. Look at the text with me. Verse 5, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the, na the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So we see several things in those two verses, two primary things I want to give you. Who Jesus is. And what Jesus will do. First, who Jesus is. Look at the text again. Verse 5, it says he's a righteous branch for David. That's referring back to another prophecy, 2 Samuel 7. We talked about this last week, the, the significance of David, this king in the Old Testament, that through his lineage would come the forever king. 2 Samuel 7, God shows up to David and says, hey, I'm going to bring through you that forever king. You're, you're going to have a kingdom that knows no end, and that's going to be Jesus. But we see that proclaimed in 2 Samuel 7. That's why he says, verse 5, a righteous branch for David. Verse 6, who is Jesus? He's called the Lord is our righteousness. We see a similar title in Jeremiah 33. Uh, just to break that down briefly, the Lord, that was Yahweh, the one true God. Righteousness, that's the perfect one, right? So you have Jeremiah saying, hey, one is gonna come. It's gonna be the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord, who is our righteousness, who is perfect. He's not gonna be like these other kings. And we get some imagery of that. Notice he says, a righteous branch, we're getting a picture there that you're supposed to picture like there's all these branches, all these kings, but there's one that's set apart. It's a righteous branch. That's King Jesus who would come. He's not like these other kings who have failed you, who are wicked. 
He's set apart. He's a righteous branch, and he would come. This is significant. Like The reason why we pan back, the reason why we zoom out is because right now we're seeing the crux of our faith, that Jesus wasn't just a good man, amen? He wasn't just a good teacher. He's God in the flesh. He's the righteous king, the one true perfect king who would come. That's who Jesus is, and that's what our faith hangs on to. And it doesn't just spring up in the New Testament. That was the plan from the Old Testament. And we have to go back to Jeremiah 23 and see that and embrace that as Christians in the New Testament church. Here's why it's important. Uh, just a couple days ago, uh, some people came to my front door, uh, and um, I kind of just I sensed it. Uh, it was Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and they came, and they were because they were really nice. <laughs> and most people come to your door like they're either dropping off a package and running, like Amazon, or they're people we know and like or they're family, and like we can see them. But this two people I don't know, they walk up to the door, and I'm thinking, I'm sensing, hey, these people are going to try to evangelize me. And I'm reminded that I'm a pastor, and I should probably not just close the door. I'm a Christian. They, they may need to know Jesus, and. Um, so I talked to him. In a split moment, I decided I'm not going to close the door. I'm going to engage these two guys. And, man, it was like the worst day of their life. Uh, I realized, like, halfway through the conversation, I was holding my uh, Phoenix Bible Church tumbler. And I think when they actually saw that, they, they started to back away a little bit. Uh, by the end of the conversation, they were in my driveway. And I was at the front door. Just picture that scene. Um, but they come up, and they're just like, hey, can we talk to you a little bit? Can we give you this booklet? I was like, is it the Bible? And they were like, no, it's this other thing. And, uh, and, and I was like, hey, do you guys love Jesus? And they were like, yes, Jesus is great. And I was like, hey, do you believe Jesus is God? And that's where, like, one guy uh, was standing there, and he was kind of the guy in training, and the other guy was standing back letting him do his thing. And that's where the one guy was like, well, Jesus uh, was an angel, and he was created by God. And, uh, and I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Do you believe his death was sufficient for all of sin? And he was like, well, yeah, yeah if you believe in Jesus, sure. And I was like, well, how, do you believe Jesus was righteous? And he was like, well, yeah. And I was like, well, how is Jesus righteous and the sufficient payment for our sin um, if he wasn't God, if he was just an angel? And, and they said some more things, and I was like, yeah, you see, you got to go back to the Old Testament. Like, Jesus was the promised righteous king. And if he's not God, and if he's not the righteous king of the universe, then his death wouldn't be sufficient. Because we're frail, we're sinful, and, and Jesus had to be God to pay for sin. And at this time, I'm not kidding you, they were at the driveway. And I was like, guys, I'm, and I was talking like this, I love them, Right? And, and I, was just, I was just letting them know, like, hey, this is so key, and, and I know you believe what you believe, but, but you should read your Bible. And I said, have you read the Bible? And he said, I got one. I said, you should read it. And, and God bless you guys. And you should see Jesus from the Old Testament to the New. He's God in the flesh. He's righteous. He's the righteous branch. He's set apart unlike any other king. He's not an angel unlike any other man. He's different. He's set apart. And that's how his death is sufficient for our sins. That's how he saves us. That's why we have a big cross up here that's neon. That says Jesus saves. Right? Because he was the righteous branch. Because he's God in the flesh. He's the one true perfect God. We see that all the way back in Jeremiah. You need to know that. Not just for when people of other faiths come to your door. 
You need to know that for yourself. That we don't put our, our trust in just a, a Christmas season, the culture of Christmas. We put our trust in the king of Christmas, the king of the universe. That's Jesus. We see that show up as we pan back in Jeremiah 23. We see that come to fruition as he tells us what Jesus will do. He, he's going to do what the other kings have failed to do. He's going to deal wisely, verse uh, five tells us he's going to execute justice. Verse six tells us he's going to save God's people. Now, in their day, they were looking for physical salvation. So as they hear that, they're, they're thinking physical. We know now, as we look at the whole of Scripture, it's going to be physical, it's going to be spiritual, it's going to be eternal, that the people of God are going to be saved, and, and Jesus is going to do this. He's going to deal wisely. He's going to execute justice. He's going to bring salvation. Why is that significant? Because Jeremiah's audience that he's writing to, that he's prophesying to, they would have thought that one of these kings that's coming, all these kings that are coming, that they were going to do that. And they were putting their hope in these kings. And, and that's why when these kings turned out to be wicked and God would judge everyone, they were let down. That's a lot of the reason why they were turning away from God. And listen, I would tell you, that was Old Testament Jeremiah. Our day is not much different than that. A lot of us, particularly 2020 election season, a lot of us are looking for, not a king, but a president, to do what? Deal wisely, execute justice, maybe even save us. Maybe save our country, bring a new economy, bring a new social justice plan to care for the poor. And we look, sometimes we go into the voting booth. We're looking for salvation. Not from a king, from a president, much like they were. And all the way back in Jeremiah 23, God is reminding you in 2019, it's not going to come with a president. It's going to come with King Jesus. He's the righteous branch. What does that mean? Well, there's lots of other branches, lots of other kings, lots of presidents. There's going to be a new one in 2020 or the old one. doesn't matter. It's going to be like all the other branches. But there's going to be a righteous branch over here, set apart, holy, the one true perfect God, Yahweh, the Lord God who is righteous. And he's going to come, and he's going to deal wisely. He's going to execute justice, and he is going to save no one else. So listen, everybody in here, I think, is probably an American citizen. If you trust Jesus over and above that, you're a kingdom citizen. So as we go into 2020, you reorient your hope accordingly. You look forward to the righteous king who will come. His name is Jesus. And then you go vote, and you go lobby, and you go debate, Right? You prioritize that way. We get that reminder all the way back in Jeremiah 23. We're going to get a savior. We're going to get a righteous king. Fast forward to the New Testament. If you have a Bible, Bible app, flip over, scroll, whatever you need to do, go to Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. We start to see this salvation take place. We start to see this righteous king show up on the scene. This is after Jesus has been born. This is the first announcement after his Arrival, Luke 2, 8 through 11, it says this. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, now don't miss this. This promise in Jeremiah, it starts to take shape. Who does it take shape with? What's the first announcement? Who is it to? Shepherds. Now, if you know anything about that day, shepherds were the lowest of the low, often considered thieves. 
And so God is telling you, Jesus is Savior. He's going to come. How is he going to come? How is he going to save? Is it going to be based on people's merits? No, it's going to be based on the righteousness of Christ. He goes to shepherds just to show you even the announcement of his birth. This is how Jesus is Savior. This is how he's going to save. He saves. This is good news. He saves because of who he is, not what you've done. He didn't show up to shepherds because they were righteous. He didn't show up to shepherds because they were Pharisees and knew their law in Old Testament. He showed up to, to, to shepherds to show you from the get-go, this is how Jesus is going to save. He's going to save by grace through faith. Who he is, the Lord our righteousness, not who you are. That's good news. That was good news for the shepherds. That's good news for us. He, it continues. It says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, because it's good news, amen? It's good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Two things I want you to see there that you may miss. This is the Christmas story, probably one you've heard a lot. This is the only time where we see all three titles, Savior, Christ, Lord, mentioned together in the Gospels. We get this big announcement, who Jesus is. We also see, for unto you is born this day, where? In the city of David. That's Bethlehem. It was called the city of David because that's where Jesse, David's father, lived. But I want you to see even more than that. I want you to see we get a city. Nowhere in here, I don't know what your Bible says, nowhere in here does it say, for unto you is born this day in a galaxy far, far away. Does your Bible say that? Uh, Nowhere in here do we see, for unto you is born this day uh, in Middle Earth, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Your Bible say that? It says the city of David. That's Bethlehem. Our our worship leader, his wife, who is up here uh, dedicating their child, Layla, Her father was born in the city of Bethlehem. He's here with us today. It's a real city. It's a real place. So, like, next Sunday, we're going to do our Christmas program. We're going to, Christmas Eve, we're going to read the Christmas story. And I imagine you've been through a few of those. I imagine some of you recited this when you were a kid. It said, for unto you this day is born in the city of David. And, and, And it didn't set in, this is a real Savior born in a real place. And a real manger, it's a real thing. It's a real hope that we're promised. This is a real hope that's starting to take shape in the Savior who was actually born in a real city. So I just want to ask two questions as we look at this. Why does Jesus save? And then how does Jesus save? First, why does Jesus save? We have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. God creates everybody in his image. They're perfect. Adam and Eve, they're naked and unashamed. Right? Every guy's favorite verse. And it's an amazing thing. Like, and the reason they're naked and unashamed, the reason they don't even have any clothes on, is because they're perfect. God is perfect. There's no shame. Can you imagine it? That's Genesis 1 and 2. Now, it doesn't take long, just two chapters. That's the bad news. To get to Genesis 3. And you see sin enter into the equation. You see the fall take shape. And if you go back and read Genesis 3, what happens is the serpent, Satan, comes and he tempts Adam and Eve. And he tempts them not to trust him. Like many times in our our world, and Satan is evil and we pray against Satan. But many times in our world, we think like, like you either trust God or you trust Satan. 
Typically, that's not the way it works, and that's not how it worked in the beginning. That Adam and Eve are tempted to trust not Satan, but themselves. Satan comes along in the form of a servant and says, who told you you couldn't eat of that tree? All right, you should eat of it. You know why? Because you're just going to be as smart as God, and he doesn't want that. And, and Satan leads them to trust not him, but self. And through that sin and through trusting self, through that first idolatry, we see sinner to enter into the equation. And it affects everything. It, it, it distorts. It destroys everything. That's why Jeremiah is 52 chapters of doom and gloom. Because you see throughout your whole Old Testament, you see people rebelling, you see people, you see kings, you see prophets coming along and begging on behalf of God, repent, God's good, come back from your sin, come back from yourself and trust the Savior. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. And you see there's a problem that we need fixed and kings can't do it. We need the righteous, the one true God to come and for him to do it himself. The sacrifices that we can do aren't sufficient. And so we see in texts like in the New Testament, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. And so there had to be a Savior who would come, and the Savior who would come couldn't just teach us some good things. He had to die in our place. Maybe you've wondered that at times, like, why the bloody cross? Like maybe you've seen a movie like The Passion of the Christ. Like, why, why has it got to be so violent? I remember when that Mel Gibson movie came out, everybody was just like, how, why is it so violent? Like, kids are going to see this? And we're just like, but Jesus, like, I love the resurrection. I love the birth. I don't like the in-between of the bloody cross. Why would that have to be? Well, you have sin. You have trusting of self over and above a holy and just God who created us in his image. And so the wages of that sin, penalty is related to position. The wages of that sin is, Romans 6, it's death. And we see that take shape in, in Scripture. So we need a a savior who would come and die in our place. We needed to be saved. We needed to be rescued. And I think we got to hit that because I think many times we diminish Jesus as savior. Right? We, we put it on Christmas cards. We put it on ornaments. And we're like, Jesus is our, our savior. And maybe we even talk about it like as Christians, like, hey, I need some help. Maybe some of you walked in here this morning and you thought, man, I need some help as a parent. This is hard. I need some help with my thought, word, and deed. I, I know I'm sinful. I know I trust myself. And maybe you said to somebody else, or maybe you prayed, like, God, I, I need some help. And, and maybe I need some improvement in my life. And my life feels like it's falling apart. And we look at, like, Jesus, our Savior, and we kind of equate those two things. And you need to know, like, I need help. I need some improvement. Life's kind of hard. That's only partially true. I know that is true for a lot of us. But it's even deeper than that. It goes back to the, the sin and trusting self that, that requires a penalty of death. You see, when I was growing up, I don't know about you if you've ever heard analogies of salvation. Here's some I would hear. I would hear one about the ocean. And I would hear it like this growing up, that, that hey, we're all like people, we're swimming in the ocean, and that's life. And that um, at some point, we, we need to get saved, we need salvation, and at some point, here's how that happens. We're swimming along, navigating the issues of life, and God throws out a lifesaver. And, and it's out there like we can see it, like we can see the, the right way to live, the rituals, the religion. We go to church, we read a Bible, we do these things. And we see that out there and we're like, hey, I want salvation. You want it? Let's go swim towards it. Right? And we start swimming towards it. And we're like reading our Bible, trying really hard, coming to church, standing up, raising our hands and worship, right? 
And we're trying to get that lifesaver, get that salvation with hopes. If we're just good enough, we can grab hold of that salvation. And then I heard it was a little bit worse off than that. No, it's actually, man, you can't, you can't work your way to God. No, he throws the lifesaver out. You're in sin. You are trusting yourself. He throws the lifesaver out. You're kind of like drowning. Like you're taking in water at this point. Life is hard. Sin is ugly. You're taking in water. But the lifesaver, God comes. He sends the lifesaver. He comes. And he just about when you're about to go under, the lifesaver rings around your neck. God pulls you in. And you're saved. And I remember hearing those analogies, and then I remember just reading scripture and seeing things like Ephesians 2 that says, not that we're swimming along and life is hard and God writes the ship, not that we're kind of like taken in water and man, things are really getting bad, and God just in the nick of time saves us. I read in Ephesians 2 that while you were dead in your sin, through Christ, rich in mercy. By his great love with which he loved you, he made you alive. Amen. And then it says, we're dead. Here's what that's saying. We're not swimming to a lifesaver trying to do all the right things. And we grab a hold of the lifesaver. We're not taking in water, drowning because sin's really hard and it's really, it's really bad for us. We are dead, lifeless and cold at the bottom of the ocean. And God, who is great, in his love towards us, who's rich in mercy, he sends Jesus Christ, the righteous branch, to come rescue us, to lift up our lifeless and cold body, and he makes the dead alive. Amen? That's the beauty of salvation. That's the beauty of, for unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior. Not we were swimming along and he, he helped us out. Not that you just need improvement. You were dead, and he brought you to life. That's why we should put it on a Christmas card, because that's good news of great joy. That's what Jesus comes to do. That's, that's why we need saving. We're dead, and we need life, because we can't swim, because we can't get our way to God. And so we need God to, to dig down deep, to, to bring us out of the pit, to bring us out of the bottom of the ocean, and to save us. That's why Jesus saves. Secondly, how Jesus saves. Jeremiah says it, he's our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 says it, he made him who knew no sin, he was righteous, that's Jesus, to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, two things with that. How does he save us? He's our righteousness. He's our righteousness in our place for our sin, but also because of our sin. You see the distinction? For our sin, but also because of our sin. Because of our sin, Romans 6, the wages of sin is what? Death. So all of the sin that in the Old Testament, in your life, in the New Testament, all of the sin of mankind, all of the gossip, all of the greed, all of the lust, every thought, word, and deed, all of this sin, there had to be a penalty. There had to be death. So Jesus dies because of your sin and my sin. He dies because of it. That should sober us. That should, when we see a cross like that, it should cause us to reflect on the, the distortion, the destruction of our sin, that it's not a joke, that it's not just a lustful thought. That put Jesus on the cross. That's why the bloody cross. He died because of our sin. But we also get good news of great joy that he died for our sin. That he made him, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he was perfect, 
to be sin for us. That he died because of our sin. That's how he saves us. But he also died for our sin, in our place, on our behalf. We said it last week, Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, that the greatest word in all of the Greek New Testament is this word, huper, which means in place of. That is the greatest word. Jesus died on a cross, so you didn't have to. And his death was sufficient to save you from your sins. So, why does Jesus save? How does Jesus save? Two things at the end. What do we do with this? You embrace salvation, you extend salvation. You embrace salvation. Maybe some of you today would say, hey, I've never, like, I, yeah, I go to church, and I, and I sure, believe in God, like, sure. But if I'm honest, that imagery of swimming towards the lifesaver, that's, that's every day of my life. That's every day when I show up to church. In fact, the reason I'm in church today is because life is hard and sin is ugly, and I just thought maybe church will help. And maybe you even said, I need to get my life right. And it's not 2020 yet, New Year's resolutions, but you're already in that zone, right? You're like, I gotta make some goals. I gotta, I gotta get some stuff together in my life. And you're just like straining, swimming towards that lifesaver, hoping you can grab God's salvation. And maybe that's some of you today, and, and you need to know, you need to embrace the free gift of salvation. Jesus died for you and because of you. He paid the penalty that you deserved on the cross. It was sufficient. He will not come back and do it again for your sin last night or last week. So you come into this place. You come desperately, but not for your works, but for the work of Jesus Christ. And you throw up empty hands of faith and say, Jesus, I have nothing to offer. I believe in you. You are the Savior. And I trust you. You died for my sin, and because of my sin, I trust you, and you would embrace salvation for the first time. It's the best thing you could do at Christmas season, amen? amen. That's the best gift you could receive is the salvation of Christ that he gives you. Some of you know Jesus saved you. You, you wrote it on a Christmas card last week, but it hasn't fully set in. As you look at the sights and sounds and smells of Christmas, you're excited about a lot of things. Savior is like third or fourth on that list. And listen, if you really understand Old Testament to New, pan out, zoom in. This is the Savior, the Lord, our righteous. He did what no other king can do, what no other president can do, what we can't do ourselves. He saved you. You were dead. He brought you back to life. And maybe you know that and you've trusted in that. Let me just tell you, this Christmas season, embrace that anew. If you were to do that, it would rise to the top of your list above Christmas carols and hot cocoa. That would be the theme of your Christmas. That would be the theme of your life. And so embrace that. Have you embraced that? Have you stopped in all the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season to just stop and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing me from death to life. Have you stopped and embraced that? Do that. Second thing, extend salvation. You know what the one thing that Jehovah's Witnesses got right you know what the one thing is they left, I became a little convicted, is they're at my front door telling me about what they believe. I'm not saying we got to do that. I'm not saying go out here and go start knocking on doors uh, yourself. You could. But I just thought about that. Man, I gave those guys a hard time. But at least they're giving their lives for what they believe in. At least like on a Saturday morning, they're like, what can we do today? I don't know, let's go tell people 
what we hold dear, what we actually put our trust in, our belief in, what we, they think it's true. We think Jesus, let's go tell them that he's an angel. <laughs> and they're out there doing that. You need to know that a true understanding of salvation leads to proclamation. When you fully embrace salvation, you will extend it to others, particularly if you don't believe you're just swimming along trying to find a life raft. But if you believe what Ephesians 2 says, that we are dead and then made alive by Christ, you need to tell somebody that, amen? Because if there's a lot of dead corpses around who need to be brought back to life, like we would call 911. The Bible version, the gospel version of that is telling them about Jesus who can resurrect them to life for eternity who can save them from sin and death. And so embrace salvation for yourself. Extend salvation to others. Go door to door if you need to, but how about just turning to your neighbor, your, your coworker, your family member, who even you brought here today, and saying, hey, did you know Jesus loves you? He came to save you from your sin. He has a plan for your life. And taking a moment, inviting them to Christmas Eve service to extend the salvation that you have first experienced. The name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. As we look at the Christmas season, as we pan out, this is the crux of our faith. Jesus, not a good teacher, not a good man. He is the savior of the world. He is king. He's the righteous king. And he came to save. Let's reflect on that together. Father, thank you. For the name of Jesus, for the power even in just the name, that we would all stop and reflect and embrace the salvation that Jesus, the Lord who saves, that Jesus has come. God, I know things are busy, uh, but this is the moment. We came to church to stop the hustle and bustle out there and the work and the Christmas gifts and the parties and the family and the drama. <laughs> and we came in this room to take a moment to embrace salvation. So God, I pray that uh, any man or woman who, especially if they've never trusted in you, they've never brought, been brought from death to life, they've never put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, I pray in this moment they would stop listening to me and start talking to you and putting their trust in you and saying they believe in you and giving their life to you. And God, I pray for every other man and woman in this room who, who would say, I I've already done that. I would just ask that, that, that you help me and you help them to just realize the perspective and power of your salvation. To realize the, the devastation of sin, that it's death, and the, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross, that it's life. And that we would sing out because of that. We would adore you because of that. We would give our lives to you because of that, that salvation would lead to proclamation. And we would proclaim you now through song, but we would also proclaim you throughout the week to a lot of other dead people who need to be brought back to life during this Christmas season. God, you've placed us here this morning for that purpose. I pray that we would respond now accordingly. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, amen.